0: The ones who often end up being most successful are the ones who really internalize the importance of not just you know bringing good people aboard, but like pulling, dragging, fish-hooking really good people aboard, by hook or by crook, whatever means, uh, getting them. And it is not easy
1: at that stage. Hi, everyone, and welcome to What Led You Here, a podcast where global leaders share their journey to success and what they think it takes to have an edge in an increasingly complex and fast-changing world. I'm Steve Vamos, CEO of Xero, and your host... I've spent the last 40 years in the technology industry, and I've learned that success or failure of any business is dependent on the leader's ability to manage the consequences of change by overcoming one of the biggest barriers to change, and that's fear and doubt. In this podcast, I talk to CEOs, founders, and entrepreneurs who've embraced change, made sacrifices, overcome fear, and demonstrated true belief in their ideas. And importantly, I'll chat to them about how they instill that belief in others who back them and work with them. Today, I'm extremely pleased to be joined by John Collison, co-founder and president of Stripe a company best known for creating economic infrastructure for the internet that helps businesses of every size accept payments and manage their business online. Stripe has been operating since 2010 and came about to solve a problem of both John, his brother Patrick, and a few of their developer mates were experiencing around the challenge of getting payment for their services. Nearly 12 years later, Stripe has experienced colossal growth and expanded globally. It's an amazing success story led by two very down-to-earth young people I can't wait to share more with you. John, welcome to What Led You Here. Thanks for having me. Starting at the very beginning, you and your brother Patrick were raised in a small country town in Ireland, to parents who were entrepreneurs, ran their own business, and you did well through school, taught yourselves how to code. Uh, Then you moved to the US, obviously, because your brother went to MIT, you went to Harvard, and then you both uh, dropped out of university to start Stripe. So tell us a bit about your journey so far. And uh, anything in particular that inspired you to go on the journey? And I guess to some extent, was the fact your parents were entrepreneurs, a big influencer on uh, how you set out?
0: Look, I think everyone's a, a product of their environment, maybe more than they realize. I just grew up in an environment that I thought was normal, where uh, both of yeah, my parents uh, uh, ran their own companies at various stages. And that just seemed like a normal thing to do. And maybe it was only later that myself and Patrick realized that uh, that that wasn't totally normal. When we were young kids, you know, kids play doctor or play race car driver or whatever. We played at having a business. And then I think part of what was pretty formative for me similarly was I was born in 1990. We grew up in the 90s when just the internet was just happening for the first time. And you were getting a sense for just how amazing it could be. Especially in you know, rural Ireland, being able to go from the world around you being just what was in your near geographic confines to the world around you being this crazy, weird and wacky Internet world. And you know, on the Internet, no one knows you're this random Irish teenager. No way we would have ended up in the U.S without the Internet and, uh, and starting Stripe. And again, I think it all comes full circle, where now, I mean, one way of looking at Stripe is we are trying to make the potential of the Internet economy accessible to more people who might start businesses around the world.
1: You and your brother started the business when you were you know, very young. He you know, you must have been around 20 when the, the two of you set off on this journey. Do you think that being young, in a sense, uh, had a big aspect to being fearless about what you're trying to do? Did you actually sit back and at any point think fearfully about what you're trying to do, or was it just doing what you you set out to do? I think
0: you're totally right. I think there is a certain mindset that is... Definitely correlated with being young, that is very helpful when you're starting to do something like this. The little corner of the financial industry that we were in was really, I would say, stuck in a rut. You know, there was maybe two perspectives you could have had on it. There was the venture capitalist accepted industry perspective, which was, well, payments is a solved problem. And you know, we've had PayPal for 20 years. And it's very easy to get a merchant account, and there's all these different players, and you know, payments are just done, right? It's happened. And then there was a, a perspective, and how we got conviction on Stripe was there was a the perspective of anyone who had tried to accept payments online, <laughs> where frequently we would talk to our friends who were software developers or founders. They would say accepting payments is the hardest thing they did for their internet business. We'd even started an internet business before that, and it was the hardest thing we had done. Uh, and so you had all this kind of direct lived experience. But then I think the jump that was required was going from seeing that glitch in the matrix, as it were, where again, there's this narrative that is everything's fine, everything's solved. And then the lived reality of people, which is it's not the case. And by the way, I think that's where a lot of the opportunities for entrepreneurs are, is, is where there's like a, a crack, you know, in the wall that you see. But anyway, from seeing this crack, then saying, Okay, sure. We, you know, I was 19, Patrick was uh, 21 and uh, we have no previous experience in the financial world and being willing to say, we'll figure it out as we go along. I think that is a particular mindset that, and by the way, it's it's not always the case for a lot of companies. A lot of companies where it's, you know, a 30 year industry veteran starts it and does very well. But I think certainly for us was very useful because I think a breath of fresh air, a new perspective, Some more customer centricity than we are, you know, we we try to be exceptionally users first at Stripe. And I think that was not the mantra that you would have heard reverberating around the worlds of the large merchant banks who had previously had this industry to themselves. I think all that was pretty important.
1: Yeah, there are always exceptions to every rule, but there are definitely advantages of being young and being willing to challenge the status quo and seeing problems differently than people who are running established businesses in a sector who may not see things that same way. A great example that I saw firsthand was when online advertising came along and all the experts in industry and all the observers and all the participants of traditional media said internet advertising is never going to pay and banners don't work. That's a real reflection of how success can often be the beginning of the downfall in a particular sector because you start to confuse your past actions that led you to where you are with what's going to make you successful and keep you in that leadership position. So it's fascinating to see the disruption that's coming from younger people.
0: Maybe this is a good thing, right? Because, you know, in in the dystopian sci fi novels, you might read a classic trope is the all powerful, super competent, multinational corporation that has, you know, replaced governments, you know, like in Kim Stanley Robinson's Red Mars or something like that. That these companies are so powerful and so competent. And of course, when you know people who have seen large companies up close say that's not actually how it works. And in fact, as you say, the story of disruption is actually pretty common. But we should all be really excited about this, right? Because that's the engine of economic health, the constant regrowth and renewal, the fact that there are so many opportunities available, the fact that two really smart kids can go compete. I think that's awesome. And you know, you see it in the stats where like two thirds of employment comes from small businesses. A lot of the time in the economy, you have all the net new job creation comes from small businesses and startups that you know that the large companies that create new jobs, but it's all a wash, you know, the job creation and destruction, whereas all the new job creation tends to come from new businesses. And so I think that's really exciting.
1: Yeah, it's a lesson for all. <laughs> no matter how successful you are, you've got to watch out. You've got to appreciate that your competitor is potentially operating down the road in someone's garage or whatever. So look, you set out to, to solve a problem around the payments getting paid. And so Stripe was born. When did you start to think, well, maybe we're onto something? Maybe this is going to be special?
0: Stripe is interesting, right? Because there was never that big launch of hullabaloo. There was never that big moment where all the metrics went off the charts. You know, the way uh, Twitter famously, I think, at South by Southwest one year in Austin, that was like the moment, uh, you know, during which Twitter blew up and everything like that. Stripe never had that. It just grew a little more every month until it was the size it is now. And so, you know, we have to kind of go back and label the chart with moments that were particularly interesting. But when we kind of launched in the sense of going from product being only available you know, on an invite-only basis to actually anyone being able to sign up. I think we had around 100 users. And what gave us the confidence to launch? Like, you know, 100 users, why didn't we just all quit and go home? But as we went and talked to those users, they were really, really happy. They lamented, again, the difficulty doing this previously, whereas uh, they found that Stripe had just fulfilled them the promise to make it simple let them not worry about payments and go back to what they actually wanted to focus on which was building their company and so that was kind of the brand promise we started out with and then you know we had a few people telling us yes continue you know cheering you on during the marathon and so that was really what gave us the the confidence to to stay working on it and actually launch and, and feel like we actually had something
1: here yeah so rather than a moment it was that just gradual sense of support you had from your customers mm-hmm. that's awesome yeah, exactly Another aspect to getting to where you've got to must have been about getting great people around you. And that can be challenging in the startup phase. And I even heard, I think your brother talking about this and saying that at one stage you're trying to recruit people and even had your friends trying to talk them out of joining you. But question for you is when you look at the journey, You know, how did you go about really getting the kind of supporters that you would have needed to get to where you are? How did you extend your network, especially across geography and coming from Ireland into the the U.S.? So I'm I'm fascinated about how you how you're able to do that.
0: Yeah, I I think this is one of the hardest things for new companies out the gate. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I think there's a lot that gets maybe over mythologized or over Romanticized about uh, the early stages of a business, where you know people say, you know, oh, it's so great, entrepreneurship, good for you. And then you actually talk to an entrepreneur, and you know, th- there's a, I'm chewing glass over here. <laughs> it's really, really hard. And one of the things that is most really hard about being in the very early stages of running a business is the recruiting, because look, there's like, especially in you know the tech world or something like that, there are all manner of great opportunities for people out there. You have all the mid-sized companies trying to you know gobble up employees. You have all the like really large tech companies, the Facebooks and Google, and Microsoft trying to hire people. And so here you are, you've just set out this lemonade stand, and you're trying to uh, to hire a few people for it. And convincing to do so is really hard. You've no brand, you oftentimes don't have much of a network. And so you have to really get creative. And I will say, just as I look at entrepreneurs, I think the, the ones who often end up being most successful are the ones who really internalize the importment of not just, you know, bringing good people aboard, but like pulling, dragging, fish hooking really good people aboard by hook or by crook, whatever means uh, getting them. And it is not easy at that stage. And so, again, like we are these, you know, Irish hooligans of trying to uh, convince people in Silicon Valley to join. And so you just try to get creative on it. Our first designer was in high school in Sweden, but uh, one of the employees at Stripe had worked with him. Remotely, you know, they'd worked on a project together. So we just flew him out to the US and he seemed really good. And so he joined and we worked out how to get this, you know, Swedish high schooler visa and that worked out in our case cuz you know with stripe we would hold meetups with our customers and then you know the ones who seemed good <laughs> we would try to hire and so that way you know they would have gotten a chance to meet us and see the office and things like that but you know it was a two twofold thing we got to hold meetups with our customers and get product feedback and things like that but then the ones who seemed really good we could actually go and hire we at various points held engineering kind of capture the flag contests uh, it's basically kind of a security hacking contest where people could learn practical security skills kind of like a lock picking contest you know for the digital world where you actually get to try and break things. And then we were just the people who had done really well on that contest. You know, we would go and email, but we tried all the, you know, we tried a lot of stuff that was, you know, that were really bad ideas as well, but we just tried to get really creative because we we didn't have much of a network to begin with.
1: And then, as you grew and you you scaled and you raised capital, I guess the question of getting the right board around you as well to support the governance of the company must have been an interesting one for you. I mean that's not an easy one for a lot of businesses to get the right people around them at board level. What was your experience there?
0: I would say um, a, a few things. One is that you can have a difference between your board and the people who give you advice. And so we've had a fabulous board who's been able to advise us all the time. But uh, but we've also benefited from all sorts of advice from other people and creating those informal relationships with people who can be very helpful, be the angel investors or just other executives. One thing I really love about, I don't know, it's the Silicon Valley culture or tech industry culture or something like that, People are very generous at their time and very willing to give their time and kind of pay it forward. Uh, and so we were definitely on the receiving end of that where various entrepreneurs who are way more advanced in their careers would be willing to meet with us and, and kind of pass along tips. And I, I think there really is this phenomenon where Silicon Valley itself has this corpus of knowledge and intellectual property that gets passed down in this very oral tradition kind of way. It's not published anywhere because, you know, if it's published, it'd be one company's secrets or something like that. But it's just like, you know, the people who've worked at company X pass it down to the people who've worked at company Y and, you know, the the whole thing kind of rolls forward. And so we very much benefit from that on on the board in particular. I think again, you just want a a mix and a a diversity of skill sets. And so we have, you know, some of our investors on the board, which would be very normal. Normal for companies in our position, like we've been very lucky to have Mike Moritz on our board more or less since the beginning of the company. He invested in our seed round and then our, our, our Series A. Uh, he's from the partners at, at Sequoia, and uh, you know did their Google investment and some of their famous investments like that. But kind of similarly, we um, you know the person we were talking uh, about just before this recording, uh, Krista Davies, has just been fabulous to work with because she brings a totally different perspective. She was at Microsoft for many many years and now is the CFO of Aon. And so I think also people can get a bit singular in the perspective they're looking for, as opposed to trying to get this real breath. And then you're ordering off this, you know, a la carte menu where you can get whatever you need at various moments of time. And the best advisors are ones who... Are not looking to eat up your time, but are willing to give it when you need it. And so at one point we we're considering acquiring this company and we texted a friend of ours who is very experienced in M&A and he said, where are you? And, you know, we said, Oh, we're just at this, you know, restaurant forever, you know, deciding whether we should do this. He's like, stay right there. I'll be right there. And he's this, yeah, he's this big wig himself, but you know, he arrives 20 minutes later, kind of sweating and slightly out of breath with this like napkin and all these like half scrawled ideas on it. It's like, okay, so when you're acquiring a company, there's three things you have to keep <laughs> in mind, but he just like turned up at the restaurant that we were at. You want people like that, right? Who
1: uh, People who aren't trying to force themselves on you, but are absolutely there for, for you when you need it. Yeah, it's awesome, man. It really does underscore just the importance of the connection to others who can understand your vision, understand what you're trying to accomplish, and help you on your way. I mean, I love Gladwell's book, Outliers, because it talks about how talent is far more abundant than your ability to connect to that community that's going to help you get to where you want to go. It's uh, fascinating to hear about your experience there. Just in your role, we were talking before about the fact that you're now approaching 5,000 employees. How are you spending a typical day? What are you focused on now in your role? And how much has that changed? I bet bet that's changed us so much over the last few years, or maybe it hasn't. Oh no, it absolutely does, and uh, and
0: I think you know m- many founders will be familiar with the phenomenon where you're always trying to hire yourself out of roles, and so there'll be a role that you're in that you simultaneously have to do and try to find the person who will be much better at it uh, than you will. And so uh, we've definitely been lucky to, uh, to to be able to do that a bunch of times and bring in some good people. But look, uh, I'm guessing it's like a lot of people listening to this. There's uh, still tons of time on recruiting. That's something that I think never really goes away because I think it's just a high leverage use of founders. Time, uh, you know, we have tons of people at Stripe who are now excellent, uh, you know, product developers or excellent engineering leads or excellent salespeople or whatever. And so, you know, sometimes I go in and open the box. It's like, uh, you know, oh, I wonder if these people thought through all the implications. And like, yep, they have because these people are going super deep on this stuff. And so, you know, I think a, a place where I can still add value is one is absolutely recruiting. you are always doing that. Uh, the second is time with customers, where uh, I think one of the you know we were talking earlier about pending disruption for large businesses and, uh, you know, the history of companies that, you know, all the companies uh, featured in the innovators dilemma that, uh, you know, uh, dropped like fruit flies, the hard disk companies during the 1980s or, or what have you. But I think one of the real warning signs for a company should be one that gets too Inwardly focused in how it thinks, and you know what is good for us as a company. You know what do we want to accomplish? What are you know other things that we could do with this tech stack or something like that? But it's always starting from the inside, working outwards. Whereas again, as uh, you know, Stripe, we are our very first operating principle. And you get on the list is users first, and the way we develop new products is we start with. Lot of problems that customers are actually trying to solve. And then ignoring what we might currently be good at or our conception of what we are as a company, like we don't conceive ourselves as a payments company because that's not necessarily what our users want from us. And so you probably saw we recently got into sales tax. You know, we launched Stripe Tax and we acquired this company called Taxjar. And again, we are building towards having the leading sales tax solution. So if you're running an online business, not only can you rely on Stripe to you know, accept payments, but then we can handle the sales tax for you as part of that. But again, the way we came at that problem wasn't, you know, we were sitting around someday in a strategy offsite and being like, you know, do you know what's an excellent profit pool is sales tax. Instead, we went out and talked and. You can find these Twitter threads, you know, Patrick in 2017, soliciting ideas from users. What would you like us to go solve? And they're basically breaking in the windows, you know, requesting VAT support and sales tax support as this kind of deafening roar. And so you kind of have to respond to that. So that that that's one thing that I you know I really try to help with is bring in more of the uh, the customer perspective to any of the teams that I work with. And honestly, just it's really satisfying as well. Where there's a lot of long days when you're running a company, but one of the things that makes the day somewhat better is when you go talk to a company and they say. Stripe solved all these problems for our businesses or our business wouldn't exist without Stripe. That's, you know, that, that, that makes the days a little more, uh, more, more pleasant.
1: So Patrick, Zero and Stripe share lots of customers and you're an important partner of ours to enable what we talk about as small business management accounting workflows being connected to money flows such as payments. A great example of one of our shared customers that benefits from our partnership is Freight Farms, the world's leading manufacturer of container farming. Since 2014, they've scaled globally and they've now delivered over 200 of their containers around the world. And they began using Xero and Stripe last year to automate their invoicing process, reducing paper check collection and selling payments from customers more quickly. Why do you think our integration works well and why is it so important to Stripe to partner with companies like Xero to help customers like freight farms?
0: Yeah, and one way I think about what what we're doing, but both at Stripe, but I think what both Stripe and Zero are doing is go ask any entrepreneur why they started their business, right? And uh, go ask the folks at Freight Farms. I think that's a you know a great example given they use both Zero and Stripe, and I'm sure they'd say they're really into hydroponics, or they're really interested in kind of this local farming movement, or there are all these reasons that you might go start a business. You will basically never hear from an entrepreneur, I just really love dealing with invoicing, or I just really love logging into one interface, downloading this report, fixing the bugs, uploading it to another interface, things like that. You never get that (laughs) answer. And so there's all this muck. There's just all this administravia that small business owners are drowning in that I think we can take away and there is you know m- multiple benefits and effects of that kind of the the first order effect is that you just it's an aspirin for all the startup and small business owners out there who no longer have to deal with this crud i think that the second order effect is as you make new business more accessible, you actually get more new businesses started. And, you know, maybe we take it for granted in the UK or the US or Ireland or Australia, but especially in kind of the longer tail of countries where it's it's maybe less of a thing culturally or it's harder. And then, you know, further on, hopefully that can get this notion of, you know, going back to the dystopian, multinational, all-powerful oligarchy. Again, just this notion of small Business creation is a really important health metric for the economy overall. Like if people aren't starting businesses, we're, we're hosed. And so we're, I think we are both trying to do our
1: little bit of, you know, trying to make that, that more approachable. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, small business, in a sense, is in the last major sector to really benefit from what technology and software can enable. And what you're doing is on the cutting edge of really changing that. And we certainly share that same purpose, which is really just about making life better for people in small business because of all the benefits that come downstream for our economies and societies as a result of that. Because we share that same passion for helping people in business, there's also some similarities in our values around the focus on people and the human element. How are you working at sort of evolving and developing your culture as you grow and scale at the, at the rapid pace that you are? I think any culture, you need to
0: continue iterating on it. And it's probably going to need some pretty serious gardening every time you say, you know, double the number of people or something like that. And so in the case of Stripe, we're now, you know, 4,000 people. You know, as I said, we'll, uh, we'll pass 5,000 people actually fairly shortly. And so, you know, we just did another. Refresh of our operating principles, and so you know, again, these notions of trying to actually go and make the map for people of how do we actually work at Stripe? Because if you're joining as a new person, you know, you don't want to have to spend. Weeks, months, years deciphering the company and understands, uh, understanding what it means to, to actually work here, it's better to have it all written down. And so, you know, that tends to bob and weave slightly over time, but the core principles, you know, remain very much fixed. So, for example, that thing I, I talked about in being totally users first in how we work is one. Another is just we try to be humble in how we interact with each other and the outside world because I don't think new products have a right to win just because you put a lot of effort or a lot of engineers on them or a lot of money into them. It doesn't mean they're going to be successful. They have to earn their keep out there in the marketplace. They have to actually be useful to people. Similarly, you know, I think it was Bill Joy from Sun who said, most smart people in the world don't work at your company. And so again, we try to be fairly humble about what our customers and you know, the rest of the world can teach us. We try to be willing to change our minds pretty frequently. So it's all these kind of cultural things that you're always trying to, uh, to kind of
1: continue pushing forward. But, but, but those are two off the top of my head. Yeah, it's interesting as you grow, your focus on evolving different aspects of that culture can evolve as well. So in our case, you know, we pride ourselves on this notion of hashtag human, which is caring, caring about each other, caring about those we we work with and those we touch in what we do. And then on the flip side of that, you know, there's the question, well, how do you go and have a challenging conversation with someone and really challenge them and confront them if you think something's wrong or needs to be different or they're not doing a great job, in your opinion. How do you deal with that? And you can't Confuse being nice to people with having a very direct and serious conversation because you know at the end of the day i always say that words are all we have on the journey of change and being able to speak very directly with each other should never be confused with not caring about each other so it's a constant challenge as you evolve your culture as you scale what do you see is next for stripe what's big on the agenda i mean there's you're always moving and, and adding more services so yeah what's what's top of mind Golly, there's a few things. One is...
0: There's just an element of Stripe that's a scale business, right? Where we're now, you know, serving millions of businesses worldwide. And as we handle payments for all of them, we can just do some stuff better as a result of, you know, b- being at that scale. And and so one is at, uh, you know, we're always maniacal about uh, transaction success rates. And so just when you charge a card on Stripe, does it go through? It's always really frustrating when you charge a card and, and it doesn't. What we can now do is we can use all the data that we have from all the transactions to date on Stripe, and actually we have a whole uh, bunch of machine learning models and various teams working on those who you know train models to make it more likely that the next card get charged goes through. And so it's a bunch of kind of essentially uh, scale benefits that you can start to get from you know being the size that we are. And what we get excited about is again passing those on to even if you're starting out tomorrow as a two person business, you know you run on Stripe. But also, you know, Amazon or Facebook, it runs on Stripe. And so you're getting the same kind of battle-tested payment infrastructure as one of those really, really large companies do. And uh, we find that really cool. The second is international expansion. And uh, this is one that, you know, again, I'm from Ireland. This is one that personally gets us really excited. And I know that's something that, again, is on our roadmap together in terms of getting lots of international coverage. But five out of six new internet users that come online come online outside, you know, the US or and, and Western Europe. And so, you know, the digitization of the US and Western Europe has reached the the plateauing point of the S curve. That is very much not true for a huge number of emerging markets. And so there's vast amounts of internet growth, digital economy growth, and we're now launching in places like India and Brazil and the United Arab Emirates and all these various places outside kind of the core Western markets. And we get really
1: excited about that too. So John, thinking about that small businesses starting out today, what what advice would you give someone that has a dream that is starting out and wants to solve a problem or change the world in some way for others? I think we covered a, a few
0: of them in a way, but one is that notion that the world is not perfectly efficient. There are startup opportunities out there. And, you know, some people don't even believe that. Like when you go pitch your idea to your friend or something like that, they're like, well, if that was the case, wouldn't someone have figured it out by now? And the answer is sometimes yes, but sometimes no. And so I think you have to be willing to believe that, you know, the economists talk about, you know, this uh, notion of $20 bills on the ground. The joke goes, you know, that the economists pass and one doesn't pick it up because they say if that was a real $20 bill, uh, <laughs> uh, someone would have picked it up by now. But it's, you know, this belief in efficient markets at absurdum. And again, I think you want to believe that there can be 20 Dollar bills on the ground, the world can be improved by your, the entrepreneur's efforts, and maybe there's a market opportunity that hasn't been solved for just no good reason. So that's one that like willing to believe that you're right in there being a market opportunity. And then I think there's an element of in the very, very beginning, just getting on with it and getting the first version of the product out the door. You can generally get the first version of the product out the door with real paying customers sooner than you think. In the case of Stripe. Patrick and I had the first version of Stripe in the hands of paying customers within three months of writing the first lines of code. And we were in college at the time, so that was part-time. And again, I think you can traditionally get that first. And it still took us two years now to get it polished enough to launch it. But I think it's very important to have those paying customers because they'll put pressure on you. They'll tell you what's broken. There's no fooling yourself. You know, you can always see this sometimes with pre-launch companies where they're a year in, they're still building, they have no customers yet, and they just need to add a few more features and then it'll be ready. I think you can kind of con yourself a bit before you actually have customers. Whereas when you actually have real paying customers, I think it's it's this really healthy pressure that you put on yourself to make the product good. And then it's what we talked about with recruiting. I think the the best founders tend to be maniacal about recruiting. They're always recruiting, they're always selling, and they're always recruiting, which are two very related, I guess, skill sets. But that's one that those companies pay attention to, because if the product actually works pretty quickly, they're going to have problems of success, such as they need a whole bunch of people to work on it.
1: Awesome. Awesome advice. Maybe just a few quick ones to bring us home. Person past or present you'd like to meet? Um, I just read a fabulous biography of Winston Churchill,
0: The Splendid and the Vile. And he was such a fabulous communicator. Actually, you read these stories in The Splendid and the Vile, also a very entertaining uh, dinner party host. So it'd uh, be interesting to meet in uh, you know, maybe the dinner party context. But you know he would keep a little book of Words and phrases that he just liked. You know, he liked the sound of keep handy. You know, for for later speeches. He really. You know, we look at those speeches now and we think they just happened, but they were very much products that they were that they were manufactured.
1: Well, that goes to the next one, which is the best book you've read lately.
0: That was a good one. I'm reading a book called Angle of Repose, which is kind of a fiction-ish book set in the American West right now. That's pretty good. Yeah, so maybe those two, but the Spand and the Violet is probably better. It's really good. Favorite musical band. Favorite musical band. I was just talking with a friend today about Tin Lizzy, who are a, a fine Irish export and actually have a, you know, people maybe know the, the one or two hits, but they have a pretty good uh, catalog. So that would be today's pick at least.
1: Favorite sport or
0: team? My sport that I both played and and now, you know, would be the I main one I'd watch if it was on is uh, it's rugby. And I, I found it ruined me because, you know, when I went to the U.S., and saw them playing American football. I just, you know, my brain wasn't fully able to parse it because it was parsing it as rugby. And it's like, why are you stopping the clock all this? You know, why isn't this flowing properly? And so, rugby, my main fan. And, you know, Ireland has had a pretty strong run over the past few years in rugby,
1: though. Um, uh, we'll see where that goes from here. Yeah. Being an Australian in New Zealand, living in New Zealand, I don't talk about rugby too much. <laughs> <laughs> place you'd love to be or want to see on the planet? Oh, interesting. Um, place I'd love to be
0: or see. I'm a big hiker. I love hiking in the the Western United States. I love hiking in Ireland when I'm here. So I love getting out and about for walks and hikes. Uh, And the place that everyone raves about, if you ask people about it, is Patagonia. And you see all these like absolutely crazy photos and people people go off, do gap years or whatever. That's where they go. I've never been. And so, you know, that's probably top of at least the the hiking uh, wish list.
1: Hey, John, thank you so much for spending the time today. We really appreciate it. Congratulations on everything you've accomplished so far. And what is awesome is how you and your journey is making life better for so many small businesses and larger businesses around the world. So thanks so much for inspiring and really informative. And I know people listening are going to get great value from your advice and I'd encourage them to follow it. So thank you very much. Steve, really fun to chat.